Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined by my friend Christine Kim today from the research team. Hey, Christine. Hi, Alex. How's it going? It's good. It's going well. Um, we're going to talk about some fun stuff today. We have um, Bimnet Abibi joining us in a moment from Galaxy Digital Trading, um, and we have Tim Grant, Galaxy's head of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, um, who's going to talk to us about a lot of big happenings in Europe um, and and in Asia. Uh, he was just in Singapore for a bunch of the crypto conferences. Um, and we're going to talk about some some European regulation and some other interesting stuff happening out there. So Tim will join us later in the show. Um, and we're also going to talk about some random crypto news, um, some stuff happening in the Bitcoin world. Elon Musk uh, apparently now going to go forward and buy Twitter and, and maybe what, what that has, what impact that may have on crypto. Um, you know, Bitcoin and crypto Twitter is a thing. Um, it's a bear market, but there's a lot happening. And I have to admit, you know, listening back to our episodes f- since we started this entire podcast. Yes, this is our podcast, 30th episode. Let's I think go. we've got to pat ourselves on the back. I think we've like really <laughs> built something quite nice. And I will say that I've, as I was listening back, our, our intro music, Oh, our intro music is one of the best of all of the crypto podcasts. Oh, and wow. I don't think our listeners really know this, but the person who made that intro music is you, Alex yes, Thorne. Yes, that is a bona fide Alex Thorne creation. Thank you. Um, it is a banger. I mean, I hope it I don't know. If, I don't think it's still running in the background, but um, uh, thank you. Uh, we might also switch it up. we got some other beats too to, to drop in here. Um, How do you make these beats, Alex? I personally like to use a software called Reason, um, but a lot of people use it, which is by Propellerhead, which is really good for looping and sampling. But um, I've used Logic and Pro Tools and um, Fruity Loops, and there's a whole bunch of ones. So it's basically the piano, right? You're using a MIDI keyboard. Use that to play all the instruments. Are we going to get some singing in like new iterations, Alex? <laughs> no, maybe some rapping though. Um, those who know me, um, but that we're, we're we're not giving you that, listeners. Today, instead, we've got all this awesome stuff. Um, before we get to some of that other stuff, let's bring in our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Thanks for having me on, uh, DJ Thorne. Right, that's uh, <laughs> what we'll call you now. Yeah, Bim. Uh, it's well, <laughs> I don't think anyone does call me that, so uh, that'd be interesting. What, what is your DJ name? I, what I'm is your say. stage no, I'm name? Not, I'm not going to say I'm anonymous. Oh, I'm anonymous. Anonymous. Um, got it. Um, got it. But um, man, a lot. I don't know. Not as much happening this week as last week with the Bank of England intervening mm-hmm. last week and all the stuff with the Fed and the. Um, but some stuff going on. One thing that caught my eye. I don't know if you have been paying attention. To this is just OPEC. Mm-hmm. OPEC's going to cut supply. It looks like again. Yep. It looks two like, million barrels per day. Yeah. Is OPEC this like alternative central bank basically? Like this is. Gonna- oh yeah, absolutely. Central bank and sort of geopolitical actor yeah. at the same time. You know, given Russia's influence as and, well. And cutting supply mm-hmm. um, is. Uh, you know, is um, contradictory or antithetical to the current central bank policies, right? Cutting oil oh, supply absolutely. will, will, will keep hurt inflation. A hundred percent. So is this like, what is this dynamic here where like now? Well, like, you've got a, uh, what do you call it? Not a monopoly. What, 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 an oligopoly. Uh, oligopoly yeah. In, yeah. Uh, in OPEC. And essentially all they're doing is running a maximized like profit function. Right. 
right? They want oil to stay high and by cutting supply, it will, and that'll help keep, you know, profits sort of in line. And that'll also help Putin keep, you know, NATO and, and some of the, the yeah, European so nations in check a little bit. It helps Putin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but fundamentally, like, you, you see where they're coming from. They're, they're just of trying course. to maximize profits. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not something that they've, of course, they've done this throughout yeah. history. I guess the interesting thing is you've got the world's central banks trying to tamp down inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and But this will keep energy prices high, right? No, no, absolutely. And, you know, energy is a, a, a huge input into lots of parts of the economy. You know, your, your foods have to get transported, right? Like, there's just... Tons of ways that, you know, oil prices seep their way into, you know, commodity baskets and, and you know, um, in, into inflation ultimately. Yeah. All right. What else are you looking at um, this week? Um, I mean, there's so much like I don't even know where to begin. We <laughs> we have moves that happen over the span of two to three days that you would have been lucky to get in a whole year. Um, you know, at some points in 2020 and, yeah. and 2021, you know, just take the, the British pound, for example, right? At the lows, it was trading at 103. Um, and yesterday, it hit a high of 115. And that's all within like a week, yeah. basically. That's significant volatility that's, for a, for that's a global. 12 FX. big figures. That is a move that normally you would have expected like in a year of like a low vol FX year. And that's what you got in a week. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, one of the things I'm, you know, while we're on the subject of, of, of pounds and cable, um, one of the most interesting things uh, that I've been watching is is the gilt operations. Yeah, so the gilts are the treasuries of, of England, right? Yes, and the operations are focused on the 30-year gilt point. And so they come in every day and they're like, guys, submit your offers. You know, if we like it, we'll buy it. And essentially for the last two days, the uh, Bank of England has bought no securities. Um, And so today what you're seeing um, is the gilt curve selling off incredibly. Uh, We had an almost 30 basis point move in in 30-year gilts today. Again, historic moves. Like if you're an asset manager, a long-term investor that's sitting in this stuff, the volatility alone forces you to have a smaller position, let alone the the mark-to-market losses that you're likely taking on on your your portfolio, which are immense. Um, And so, you know, we're we're dealing with a very dynamic market, um, but... Putting leaving England aside, you know, that's been, you know, sort of a huge driver of markets. The other thing that, you know, sort of struck me this week was the amount of short covering that that happened over over the past two sessions. Low to high, the S&P and NASDAQ basically rallied six uh, percent from, you know, the, the quarter end lows on on, on Friday. Um, and it was largely a function of, of folks that were caught wrong way on 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 risk. Um, essentially what happened was you're at the dead lows of the trend in terms of you know equities you're at the dead highs of the trend in terms of dollar strength and positioning is like two to three standard deviations in in one direction so positioning is extreme and the the level is also extreme so the moment you got uh, any reversal any reversal it triggers like a very you know aggressive short squeeze and the market tries to attribute a narrative to that said short squeeze. And so the narrative this time was everybody knows that the data is turning. Everybody knows <laughs> that eventually the data is going to soften and you're seeing it now show up in manufacturing, right? So you, this week you had manufacturing data that, that looked really poor. We mm-hmm. already knew that. Because mm-hmm. one, 
you know, manufacturing is heavily developed. It's been poor. Yeah. It's also like very sensitive to, to dollars, right? Nobody wants to buy equipment when in, you know, their native currencies drop by 20%. It's right. like, holy shit, the thing that I want to buy went up 20% because of inflation. It went up another 20% because of the fucking FX too. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yep. sorry about my, my language. And so like, if you're not going to buy some, people aren't going to buy something that went up 40% in right. value. So manufacturing activities is, has been slowing, but we're a service-based economy and our service sector is still strong. And that's what you saw today with, with right. ISM. Um, point being, the market latched on to that one bit of weakness um, and then it also latched on to uh, a little bit of weakness in job openings. It looks like job openings have declined uh, pretty materially. They're back to levels not seen since I believe like April of, of, of 2020. Um, but high level, you still have 4 million more job openings than there are like uh, like 4 million excess job openings, right? So if there's, let's say, you know, 8 million people unemployed, there's 12 million job openings wow. still, right? And so the labor market is still insanely hot. Um, and the Fed knows this, uh, but you've had some, some interesting comments. You know, I think the way I would think about it is if there is a forward market on U.S. data right now, if people could bet on, you know, where services PMI was going to come out in six months from now, where, you know, CPI was going to come out six months from now, which right. you can in a way. I mean, there are inflation break-evens. Uh, but it all suggests that forward-looking data in the future is going to be poor. Yeah. Uh, and the Fed knows this. The question is, how poor is it going to be? How, how soon will it be poor? Uh, yes. Yeah. And how the magnitude of, of sort of layoffs that happen. Right. Um, right now, you're not really seeing like layoffs. It's more like, guys, we're not hiring. There's a hiring freeze. Right. Right. It's it's you know there's still 12 million job openings, and so you're seeing the labor market cooling, um, but not but, really retracting. Not, not really, really retracting. Yeah. And if you go back to our last podcast, right, you you know that you really do need that labor market to contract in a meaningful way. Otherwise, people are just still too comfy because of, you they're know, spending mortgages. Money, they're traveling. Yep. Yeah, it's traveling. exactly. The other stuff. Yeah, that's the one that can hit like the best for the Fed, right? That actually has the most impact if yes. it happens. We Correct. talked about how houses like, you know, most people won't even be affected by these rising mortgage rates. Correct. So it's just not a very good instrument to impose pain. It's a very blunt tool. Yeah. And that is sort of how but the labor market would really if a bunch of people were to get laid off or be paid less or somehow wages come down. Yeah. That would materially reduce inflation because they'd spend less and spend and buy cheaper things and buy and travel less and yeah. Um, but and that level, would accomplish the Fed's goal. Yep, absolutely. Now the question really comes down to like the thing that really moves markets the most is what the Fed says and like what the Fed says they're gonna do. And the question is, how does the Fed respond to like a slightly weaker jobs data and you know some of the other things yeah. going on? And right now, I think. It, what the market's saying is that they're going to take the approach of we're going to wait and see how data is impacted by our policy, right. right? Monetary policy works on a lag. Everybody knows that it works on a lag. They're going to highlight the fact that it works on a lag. And they're going to basically, I think, tell you that they're going to go to the level that they told you in the dot plot, which is 4.5%, right, in terminal rates. They'll get there. The, the sequencing won't matter that much, but right now the market's pricing that in. They'll get there and they'll probably just wait and see how the d data unfolds. Wait for a couple, a couple right? of their meetings. Now, and, yeah. now the question is, is that good for risk assets? Is that what, like, is that removing sort of the tail of, you know, Volcker level, like jacking up rates five plus percent 
Like, does that tail get removed if the Fed's like, we're going to wait to see, see, wait and see. And I, I think it's kind of right. Um, but the point is that if, if, the, if, if they are going to do the wait and see approach, then I think that's generally good for risk assets because right. that eliminates uncertainty yeah. from the market. The problem is, too, though, um, which we all know, is so much of the inflation we're seeing is not literally because of rates, right? I mean, you could say it's it is. supply chain. Yeah, a lot of it's like and, and fiscal oil. and fiscal yeah. and energy, right? And these are things oh. the Fed can't control. Yeah, um, I mean. And and so if they, if they then do wait and after reaching their current 4.5 terminal um, rate, um, level, um, and then the data doesn't turn or continue. We get, you know, a wider war in Europe breaks out, which increases prices, right? Then they find they do they do find themselves in the Paul Volcker 1970s and 80s situation because they they halt they tried and halted a couple times until Volcker really stepped on the on the pedal there, right? I, and and I mean personally, that would just be Max Payne if it's like we all think we got there, everybody gets like more comfortable again, and, buy, and they get yeah. bullish on risk assets, and then it turns out that like. You know, more pipelines blow up or like more whatever I, happens I, and all of a sudden everything doubles in price again. And then they're just like, we have to make it 20. <laughs> I mean, that, it, yeah, how high did no, Volcker take it? Like no, 17 no, no, no. or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a totally feasible scenario. Like particularly yeah. with like what OPEC is doing right, right now, right? Uh, like I could easily see uh, oil above $100 a barrel. Uh, you know, at the start of next year, yeah. right? If China like actually like reopens in a meaningful Remember way, when oil after went negative. Yeah, <laughs> in two negative years, forty dollars a barrel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's gonna be that was a but, crazy time. But yeah. th that's kind of why you know you see the dynamics in the oil market because if you think about it, the entire oil industry throughout history has gotten burned by over sort of. Uh, investing in capacity yeah. when oil prices were really high, right? And so they, they've been trained to not do that anymore. And so just because oil prices are high, like they haven't been like increasing production like right. crazy. They were like, well, wait, and then oil prices fell and now they have to like, cut production. And imagine if you had invested a huge right. amount. So, right. but the other thing I want to highlight, you know, before I go, I know I've been on a lot. It's all but, good, uh, it's all good. Uh, it's just, you know, if you think the U.S. has it bad, I mean, the Europeans and the Brits, they have it so much worse. I mean, a fragmented monetary union, the, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, you got, you know, Italian bonds selling off much more than like German bonds. You've got, you know, tensions between the Germans and the Italians. You have a, a British political system that you know, to me just looks absolutely broken. And and the impulse of like the, the politicians in Europe is more inclined towards just giving people money, right? Like more social safety nets, like infla uh, inflation relief checks They're or oil about, relief checks. Yeah, and that say, only yeah. helps inflation. And then if they don't hike enough, their currency depreciates a lot. Like they are in such a pickle that it it just can't end well. <laughs> oh, There's man. no good ending there. I know. We're gonna talk that's about. That's why I'm, I'm pulled up that, dollars. But that, that's great. We're gonna talk with Tim uh, in a few minutes about about Europe and and Great Britain in particular. But um, yeah, it's a tough one. And they're talking about price caps on energy, which just simply yeah, won't work. Obviously, yeah, uh, and, and yeah. it will cost them enormous amounts of money. No, you're gonna have um, to like bail out your your industries and yeah. stuff. I mean, Germany's already I think taken it's, over. It's a unbelievable, of actually, because Germany was like the 
the industrial center of Europe for decades, right? Yeah. And and really maybe for all of history, I'm not an expert. Yeah. But um, just but absolutely devastated by energy right now. Yeah. Devastated. But like, you know, I would argue that if people really focused on like what the core of the issue is, it's politicians that only know how to spend money. Yeah. No politician ever gets elected by being like, not, I want to not spend money. I know. Like, it just doesn't work. Yeah. The political economy is not that. We could get into it at the congressional I term I limits. It's, I want to get on that. We're going to do, all right, we're going to do what, one of these days. Let's make but a, it's a misalignment no, of incentives. Like, that's fundamentally what it is. But high level, you think to, like, what is the terminal state of the, the what is the, the terminal state of, of, of this solution? Like, how does this all end? Like, at least what we can envision and i genuinely think like it comes down to like bitcoin i don't know whether it's like me talking yeah. you know you know when i'm long uh, or it's you know an industry that i like but fundamentally like i just question fiat policy decision making so like frequently now it's in your face it's almost a, it almost goes back to like when they are just mailing people checks during covid yeah and it's like what is money if you could just print it and <laughs> yeah like that's the joke people are like why and, do i have to pay my taxes if the government can just print money to pay the taxes for us right like now of course we know they can't in, <laughs> yeah because that's, that's how you bankrupt yourself but but it's also yeah. like you just think about certain things i mean like on average, the, the Fed's balance sheet right now takes like tens of billions in losses uh, every week. Uh, sorry about that. Um, but like, think about it. The, 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 Fed, the, the Fed bought all these assets and then they made it like go down a shit ton in value. <laughs> and it just sits on their balance sheet. Like, yeah, there's losses. Losses. It like, is. It's, what are, I agree. There's never been a time where the, there's this swirl of negativity and failure and mistakes just like swirling around money the idea yeah. of money the, the financial system the monetary system i mean it's just it, you think about central banks today and like one of the first things that comes to your mind is not stability it's absolute bonkers craziness yeah and that that just can't hold like long term like that something has Absolutely. to give Absolutely, and, yeah. and it's i mean the dynamics in em are, are just insane they're like hyperinflation they keep your money there you can't get it out like you yeah know, it's, the system it's, is not working it's just broken it's not working it's broken and that's why i find myself more thinking like you know bitcoin at twenty thousand. Yeah, there's value there. Yeah, there's value there. It's 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 almost asymmetric at this point yeah. in my head. And, and like I'm a bear on like lots of other risk assets, but in terms of like how you think about it, in terms of allocating a portfolio in this kind of uncertainty, right? Like, do you buy thirty year bonds and take a view on like where inflation is going to average over thirty years at central banks or ten years? Or whatever. How can you? They're all over the place. All over. Yeah. Like, like exactly. I, I wouldn't even know what where to begin. That's what you used to do. That's supposed to be basically the lowest risk asset mm -hmm. you can buy, and it's it's a high risk asset it's right now. It's an insane risk asset. Oh. And so I, I definitely think that more and more people are gonna think about Bitcoin as like a very like reasonable position to have on in a, yeah. in a cross asset portfolio. Also. It's less volatile than so many things. It literally now. is less it volatile just, over the last month or so than yeah. the S and P. Like yes. it's, it's moving like one or two percent. S and P's been moving two to five percent. It's crazy. It, it, absolutely. Um, and so I genuinely am, you know, getting more constructive on on Bitcoin. In addition, I just don't think there's much for selling left. Yeah. I, I definitely. I think this is a, a market that exhibits classic symptoms of seller exhaustion. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And there's also, you know, just technical factors like, you know, in terms of lots of overwriting programs that kind of keep a lid on it, but also keep a floor on it yep. in terms of, you know, how, how dealers manage certain positions. Um, so with that, you know, you know, I think what, what I'd leave people with is uh, it's a very bad environment to own risk assets. But if you had to pick a couple to own or at least have a small exposure to Bitcoin definitely has a place in it. And. You, you could make that argument to every big macro guy, and I think they would definitely sort of see the merits in that yeah. in that argument. Yeah. Bimnet Abibi, Galaxy Digital Trading, as always, great to have you, my friend, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Um, so Christine and I, we're going to talk about a couple topics, but before we do, I want to tell our listeners that if you would like us to talk about any specific topics – Tweet at us, GLXY Research. Uh, email us, research at galaxy.com. Um, and if you want, send us a voice memo or a, a voice recording of you asking the question, um, and we'll consider airing some of those. You um, could be featured on our show. Yeah, that could be fun. Um, so, But do do hit us up and let us know. Um, you know, ask us, tell us what you're seeing during the week, and, and we'll, and we'll uh, consider talking about it. Um, okay, so a couple things. Okay, this is kind of fun. This is a big story. Elon Musk apparently has sent a letter to the Twitter board saying actually he will go forward. He's back at it with again. the purchase of Twitter. Yeah, I guess you know what, what I'm being told. And this is too much whiplash. <laughs> too much. Look, we're in, like Bimnet said, this is a volatile market. Okay, um, this is just irresponsible. At it's this crazy. Point. I mean, I guess so. There's been a bunch of crazy things. They're in litigation, right? Because Elon was trying to terminate this deal. Right. He had claimed that um, the, the, the Twitter was not forthcoming about the number of bots on the platform. Now, we're on Twitter all day long, and and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. We know there are a lot of bots, to be clear. You see them all the time. People impersonate me. They auto-reply saying, check Tons. this out. Hey, did you... Hey, if you type the word, if you tweet the word MetaMask, like you get a you get a reply from like a bunch of people claiming to be MetaMask support that want to fish you with like a Google Doc form, right? It's tons of stuff like that. Um, but so he had he had claimed that Twitter was uh, not forthcoming about basically how many real users they have. Um, I haven't been following. So then this is in litigation in the Delaware Court of Chan Chancery or whatever it's called, wherever you go for corporate uh, disputes like this in Delaware and. Um, I haven't really been following this closely, but what people were saying is that like he, it looks like he was not doing well in the lawsuit. He was likely to lose the lawsuit, and that's why he came back. Apparently, to the, to I don't know. Able to buy Twitter. I don't know if people know exactly. He didn't. I don't think he says in the letter exactly why. Um, but he's back. Apparently, the deal is on. Um, and this is kind of funny because, um, like, I don't know. I mean, first of all, Elon is like a. He's got his place in the crypto. In the crypto world, I right. mean, what what is his place in your view? From I your think seat? it's for the Dogecoin lovers. Like right off the back of this news, we saw Doge pump a little bit, five uh, percent. Yeah, dog money. And I thought that was great because I think Elon is this like love or hate figure in the crypto space. Um, I, there was a lot of love for him from the Bitcoin community when he had said that they were going to accept Bitcoin at Tesla. For, for, yeah, yeah, Tesla, and then. Um, and then obviously that turned to hate when he was like, no, just kidding. We're not going to do that. Yeah. He like but. just found out that Bitcoin mining uses energy. He got very, we were, I, I was quite upset with that, to be honest. And actually I know um, there were some really good folks at Tesla who had helped build their Bitcoin integration who were very upset when, when that was said. I mean, okay. But at the, at the end of the day, it sounds like Elon's personality and the way he's making these decisions, it's, it's not, yeah. it's like, it's back and forth all the time, but I, Elon is 
clearly very engaged with the crypto community and he's not afraid right. to speak his mind on Twitter. Like even before I think crypto was around, he was always on Twitter tweeting about different things. Totally. totally. Um, so I mean, I, I think that this has been a little bit good, a little bit of a good excitement when crypto seems a little bit dead and just like, you know, DeFi activity is really slow. We don't have like a ton going on. I thought Elon kind of like showing his face again yeah. <laughs> to the crypto's Twitter. Space I also love it just in general, like assuming if Elon does, consummate this acquisition of of twitter consummate um <laughs> so usually you say with a deal um but if 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 he does like he's a big user of the platform it's pretty like kind of neat that like a user a, a, someone who loves the product and uses it every day would own it like i i really i think that's kind of beautiful in some ways um Another connection, obviously, Elon and dog money is an ongoing humorous thing. By the way, you know what? Like, I've always been fine with Dogecoin. I think people know this. Like, we wrote a big report about Dogecoin. I said that uh, Dogecoin was the most honest shitcoin um, because it doesn't pretend to be anything. It's not. has no pre-mine. Uh, it was totally fair launched. And why shouldn't dogs have money, you know? I mean, can they? I want to see someone in the Dogecoin community make, uh, figure out a way to have a dog use Dogecoin. All right? Put like a... You know, a little you get one of those socks you put on the dog's paws and put like an RFC chip in it and have the dog wave it at like a square terminal or something and pay with pay with Dogecoin. This Doge is coin. too sophisticated Why can't for we dog get that? money. <laughs> I want to see dogs paying with dog money. Um, so as part of the litigation between uh, Elon Musk and Twitter, a bunch of text messages were released um, of Elon's texts. And, and they're with everyone. Oh my gosh. Almost every like investor, big private equity investor bunch of venture investors are all in these texts um, as Elon or either as he solicits money to help build this deal or some sometimes they come to him offering money to get into the deal. Um, people in there, I mean, Jason Calacanis, um, Sam Bankman Freed, um, a whole bunch. I'm not going to name them all, but you can just Google this like Elon lawsuit text messages. You'll see all that. That's all been made public. Um, but one of the really interesting ones was from Jack Dorsey. Um, he sent uh, Elon had complained about censorship and stuff on the platform. He had tweeted this and Jack sent that tweet to Elon and said, yes, a new platform is needed, but it can't be a company. That is why I left. And Elon says, well, what should it look like? And Jack Dorsey said, quote, I believe it must be an open source protocol funded by a foundation of sorts that doesn't own the protocol, only advances it a bit like what Signal has done. It can't have an advertising model. Otherwise, you have surface area that governments and advertisers will try to influence and control. If it has a centralized entity behind it, it will be attacked. This isn't complicated work. It just has to be done right. So it's resilient to what has happened to Twitter. And Musk replies, super interesting idea. Wow. That sounds very much like it's, the blockchain decentralization. Yeah. Ethos. And later in some of the texts, Elon said to someone else like that blockchain Twitter is like not happening. But that again it doesn't have to be a blockchain um and you know users who have followed twitter listeners who have followed twitter for a long time uh will recall the uh what was it called blue ocean um blue sky blue sky thank you <laughs> ocean blue sky ocean. No, it was pretty close <laughs> hey it was close um it's weird how the brain works like my i knew it was blue and i knew it was you know a, a geographic or topological feature um topographic feature um that was a, that was kind of what Jack had been trying to build at Twitter was sort of like an open protocol version of Twitter. Um, I don't know if we'll get there, but I thought that was a really interesting text message to hear Jack's um, Jack pitching this idea to Elon. And it also speaks to why, like when he says, you know, that's one of the reasons why I left Twitter and what he's working on now. I think 
Jack Dorsey has been very clear that he really, really wants to focus more on like the building out the open source, like completely decentralized community uh, and building atop Bitcoin. I think there was another news item that kind of like made people surprised, though, um, and, and question a lot of Dorsey's motives. There was like a news item last week where Dorsey was the decentralized exchange that he was oh, trying TBD. to build. Yeah. yeah. So that's part of Square. Yeah. It's called TBD and then some numbers. <laughs> I don't know what. No, I think the issue was they said they were partnering with Circle for like on and off ramps. Right. And, and some of the Bitcoin right. maximalists were upset about this. Um, I, I don't, I, I honestly, it's hard to really know how to react to that. Um, so that's at Square and they've been apparently trying to build some kind of decentralized exchange that will do stuff with Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Um, and people I think are like, well, partnering with Circle, like decentralized exchange. Like, yeah. How does that jive but it's really hard to know because we only have this um i think for tbd we only have a very vague white paper um so we just don't know what they're building so it's it's hard to be critical but yeah um yeah just to close up the uh, elon thing later in the conversation elon did reply quote i think it's worth trying to move twitter in a better direction and doing something new that's decentralized so um regardless of where this ends up and you know i i, I don't think to be clear like we're not talking me and christine i don't think anyone really who knows about blockchain would advocate for like Twitter on the blockchain, like literally like quote unquote, like every message is like a blockchain transaction. That's ridiculous and, and, and unnecessary. Um, but I think one of the things, and, and Nick Carter has written a lot about this too, that would be great would be if you could carry your social graph around you with you, if you went to a different platform. Right. And, and um, you know, if Donald Trump or anyone or Alex Thorne gets deplatformed, then at least I could bring my social, my, my followers, right, to another another venue, right? Yeah. The idea, I think, behind Blue Sky was to make Twitter kind of like email, an open protocol upon which anyone can build an email service or whatever they want. We can build Alex Twitter, Christine Twitter, like, um, and and my version only has these things on it, but it just uses the same underlying protocol. Yeah. Something like that would be great, and it doesn't need a blockchain. I think that really gets at the crux of what I think the Web3 vision is actually about. It's not necessarily about putting every single, every single like social media platform on a blockchain, but it is about making an internet, making an online social space more permissionless yeah. and open and Correct. decentralized. And, I, and blockchains can play a role, no yeah. doubt. Um, but I mean, they have to by nature of the fact that they are like a very interoperable platform that everyone can yeah, get to and access. But you can do a lot of this without a blockchain. And, and so a lot of it shouldn't be on the blockchain. And, and, and it's one where, you know, you can certainly if you need payments and, and, and other things or if you want to anchor data. Right. You can anchor it to the chain or something like that. But um, I don't know. Big news. We'll have to see what happens um, with Twitter. But um, it's just a what a saga. It's. It, I, I personally believe that Twitter is still the most vital and important social media network in the world, um, at least in the U.S., which obviously is what I know. Um, it's where the, the most conversation happens, the, of real conversation, right? Obviously, there's great places like Reddit um, where deeper, longer-form conversation can happen, but Twitter's kind of like the, the town square, the front page of the Internet, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's been on such a long road, this company, and with Jack Dorsey leaving, founding it, like leaving, coming back, like then leaving again, and, and now Elon Musk getting involved. It's just, what a saga. Yeah, this company has been taken in so many different directions. I think some kind of clarity around this whole legal process will be, really, be good one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. Let's bring in Tim Grant, uh, head of e Europe, Middle East, and Africa uh, for Galaxy Digital. Tim, 
How's it going? Good to have you. It is great to be back on this uh, Pearl anniversary, 30. Yes. That's, that's Pearl. Is that Pearl? So it's the Pearl anniversary. Dang. Yeah. We, who's getting us pearls? We got to get someone buy us some pearls. All right. Actually, you can't give us anything. We do not accept <laughs> gifts. Do not get me anything. Um, Tim, you're where are you right now? You travel the world a lot. Where are you today? I am back off a very big tour around the world, which we'll get to later. Um, but yeah, I'm broadcasting live from Galaxy's EMEA headquarters in uh, Oxford Circus in London, which we've just moved to. Amazing. Um, I haven't I've yet to get out there, but I will be coming soon. Um I would love to get out there. Well, before we get to all to Europe and and some of your travels, um, I just you know you're a a long time British citizen, I guess lifelong, most likely, right? <laughs> By the way, brackets French and American. So, oh, there we uh, go. I, I can answer all those questions. A but citizen, yeah, so I'm born in the UK. A, a global citizen. Um, I wanted to ask you about two items related specifically to Great Britain. Um, the death of Queen Elizabeth uh, II, um, you know, I, I was raised in New England <laughs> and, you know, from age zero until like 13, they beat the Revolutionary War against the British into our heads. But um, so I, I often have, uh, uh, you know, anti-British sentiment and I, I'm going to come clean on that bias to our listeners. Um, but I, I was a big fan of Queen Elizabeth um, and she was really a stoic um, I really admired her stoicism and the, the her view of how a, mon, a modern monarch uh, should work. So I wanted to offer my condolences to you, Tim, and um, the people of Great Britain on on her passing. And I'd love, what was it like? I mean, what's it been like in, in, in the UK uh, since that happened? And I don't know, any thoughts you have on that? Well, firstly, on behalf of the British nation, we were delighted to accept your condolences. <laughs> uh, I shall. <laughs> uh, it's been a little otherworldly in London around this extraordinary event. You know, we've we, we've got a, a monarch who is really by any stretch. I, you, I think there are stats that there are some longer reigning monarchs somewhere in history, but but really in modern history, seventy years, unparalleled, unlikely to be seen again. Um, such a i've i've no i haven't known a britain without the queen right uh i was born in 75 so right uh it, it, it she's very dear to our hearts i will go ahead and say i'm not really a monarchist but i'm a traditionalist and and i think uh queen elizabeth was incredible for the country she lived through so many different facets of this nation's evolution and she's beloved right she's absolutely beloved and that that sort of beautiful energy and that outpouring uh, of uh, of of just love was was just wonderful to see, and we saw it as Londoners every day, uh, and and uh, people queuing up for for hours. You know that wonderful story of David Beckham refusing to jump the line uh, and waiting you know, his twelve hours in a line to spend a few moments with the Queen. It, it's amazing stuff, um, and uh, and I think look, it, it it's going to be interesting to see where we go from here. King Charles, which is still strange to say it when I've been saying Prince Charles all my life, um, we don't know where he's going to take this, and every every monarch has their own slant on it. So yep. it's all died down a bit, but I, but it was very there was a fever, uh, and a, it was a beautiful thing. I think it's it's a, it's a wonderful homage to a wonderful woman. Yep, absolutely. It, it, you know, we just saw some of it on TV from here, and it looked like a true outpouring of of support and love for the Queen. Um, it, it can't happen. I guess this would always be the case. I mean, like you said, she she lived and reigned through uh, just an incredibly tumultuous time in the world and, and you know, for the British Empire. But um, it's tumultuous now in Great Britain. Um, you have the new prime minister, Liz Truss. Um, just most recently, we were talking about this last week and a little bit this week with Bimnet. Um, a lot of volatility in, in both, you know, 
Brit- British sovereign uh, debt and also in, in the British pound, you know, what's the sort of uh, like, what's it feel like on the ground, you know, economically speaking, uh, it feels very tumultuous, uh, you know, in the news. Yeah, you know what, and Bimnet uh, dropped a glorious F-bomb earlier, it, you know, it, it, he's right, it's, it's absolute chaos in Europe, I'll talk more about Europe later, but in the UK, yeah, it's look the tricky start for the new government. Um, they're all already dealing with credibility issues. Uh, those tax cuts led to huge selling in gilts that Bimlet's been talking about that raised rates across the curve, crushed sterling. I mean, in my lifetime, we've we've never seen sterling uh, at that those lows. It's really it's almost all time lows, right? Uh, which led to BOE intervention. Um, and then, a, and then, a, a really, where the credibility was strained, a massive government U-turn on tax cuts. Sterling recovered, but you know, to, to Bimnet's point, Sterling remains super vulnerable. We've got UK inflation that's going to remain high, and not due to the the consumer spending element that we're seeing in the US. Uh, it's because the rising cost of foreign goods, the rising prices to protect margins, it's all leads to inflation, mm-hmm. rate hikes. You know, I just saw earlier just this afternoon that that uh, the government's pulling together the big mortgage banks because more anyone who's trying to get a mortgage in the UK, and I'm, by the way, I happen to be one of them, it, it's a nightmare. They're pulling rates every week because no one's seen rates uh, and a change at this sort of rate and uh, and this level of turmoil. So it's it's pretty dire. And then the energy element, clearly, that's something that that is very specific to Europe and the UK and not the US. And look, I, I, yeah, as a, as a as a as an energy consumer in the UK, I'm getting the letters from British Gas saying, "Hey, now there's a cap. You're only going to have to pay two and a half thousand pounds maximum in your bill." And I can't help, you know, as a market participant, look at this and think, "Well, that's not good. That's going to cost a fair bit because mm-hmm. the the geopolitical challenges over in the Ukraine and Russia." don't look like they're going away anytime soon. You know, Germany was just cited the other day saying they're going to stop some exports to, to keep the energy for themselves. And that that's a very natural and sensible protectionism in your own country. So we, we got a long way to go. It's very volatile. What does it feel like here on the ground? I think people are worried. It's going to be a tough winter, you know, both figuratively uh, and literally. Um, so, so look, I think the government yeah, by the way, there's lots of, of news items about, you know, the credibility issue. Will this trust be mm-hmm. removed quickly? The answer is no. She's, she's protected for another 11 months by, the, by you know, the, the constitution here. Sure, they could change the rules. It's, that's a bit much. So, you know, she's just going to, uh, with Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, do what they can. But look, you have to recognize they lurched about a bit. And they had their they had their place and the, and their, their their part to play in recent volatility, which is right. you know not welcome. So not easy in in on the British Isles, I have to say. Yeah. All right. Let's dive into Europe and 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 what you're seeing in crypto, uh, Tim. Uh, you know, I don't know where you want to start, but we've got a lot to cover. Um, do you want to start with uh, just what you're seeing? I don't know, maybe in European regulation, or or you you tell us where you want to go here because there's a lot. Yeah, let, let, let's talk. Let's talk. Well, firstly, I want to do a, a little a little uh, shameless plug for for the for the EMEA team here. We've been building a team over the last year. We got a, a wonderful group of thirty people across all of our business units in Galaxy now, sales, trading, asset management, banking, mining, venture. Um, and uh, and so what I'm about to talk to you about is really the, the, the aggregation of, of this awesome team in London and Dubai and what we're now hearing on the ground. Right? Yep. We've now got a really good sense of, of what's going on in the marketplace. And so um, I will say one thing, a lot of what I'll talk about is around sort of the sentiment 
um, and, and we will get to regulation because some super interesting developments there. But I, I will say as an underlying sort of structural element to Europe, the adoption cycle continues unabashed, right? We've got large, large TradFi banks, institutional asset managers and, and, uh, and insurance companies, big traditional hedge funds, both macro and systematic, payments providers, ETF players, exchanges, all all really kind of leaning into this, even though we're in the middle of this this period of uncertainty. And look, this kind of the macro backdrop that we're referring to uh, on today's show it's going to make the best of people step back from looking at crypto, even if you were looking at it, right? It's just a natural thing. People people are going to flight to safety. And so, like, notwithstanding that, we still see that, that energy level, which is great. So what is crypto sentiment like here in Europe? Well, it, it remains high. Investors see the long-term sort of asymmetry of investing in the asset class. And I think you know, that's changed. Europe was a bit slow and now it's kind of on the rise compared to previous bear markets where the industry went into hibernation over here. The ecosystem's still functioning. And, and, and it's a question of, you know, not whether crypto will cease to exist uh, and what it's, you know, what its purpose is. It's like, what's the right valuation for that? Now, that's more healthy than mm-hmm. before. It's a little bit more productive than before. And high quality projects continue to attract capital. Capital allocation, as I was referring to, remains super cautious, though. You know, until this macro picture clears, not surprising, we're, we're going to see some people on the sidelines. But, you know, m- our, our illustrious leader, uh, Mike Novogratz, said in Singapore last week, you know, uh, and I think that was uh, quoted in some of the press, when we see the Fed flinch, we think crypto is is going to bounce. I, I think when we see the macro situation improve in Europe, we're going to see a big bounce of sort of pent up engagement in crypto. So so that's the broad kind of picture in the background. And, and by the way, I think that with we're looking at Q1, Q2 next year, some some of the some of the big players who were looking to engage this year, because they'd done a year or two of work, mm-hmm. they're just pushing it off. So so we'll see where we are next year. Unfortunately, I think it has to be said again, returning to the macro situation, whereas the market's expecting the Fed to cut rates in, in the second half of, of 2023. I think the Bank of England and the ECB might have a harder time and need to sort of wait into 2024. Uh, and so that decoupling, I think, will, will feel very real, real at some point. Right. So, look, that's the high-level picture. The one thing it's worthy of note is, you know, the, the positioning for Europe uh, relative to Asia and the U.S. as a you know, crypto innovation center I think when we and when we talk about uh, the, the the regulatory evolution here, Mika and other things in the UK, it's it's really looking as rosy as it's ever looked. Um, you know, the, the Mika element of of getting all of this together uh, uh, is is a meaningful statement of, of 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 collaboration across an entire block of twenty seven countries. So I think that helps the sentiment here. People are seeing these things come through. Right. Um, maybe we, you know, and maybe not in some other jurisdictions. So, so net positive there. About Mika, what are like the core components of Mika? Like, what do you think is going to particularly change about the crypto industry over in Europe because of this this legislation? Well, look, I think that the, the the big headlines on Mika. Uh, that today, actually, it's hot off the press, and this is uh, you know, Wednesday the sixth, I believe we're, we're recording to Wednesday the fifth. Today, we saw that the final wording for for the Mika legislation was was put in place. So, no more changes. That's it. Uh, that alone has 
uh, and we were talking a little bit before before the show. Where are the, and, and uh, Alex, you made the point rightly that it's never been very clear what the timetable is and who what the process is across the EU block to get this over the line. We've been talking kind of with a big bid offer of 2022 to 2026 right. when this thing actually might come through. And now, it, it, in, a, in, a, in a strange kind of rapid moment of clarity, what we have is the finalized wording and, and a very formal set of, 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 of steps that we need to go through that we feel will be done by early 2023. That then means that it's just a period of time, probably about a year or so into 2024. And we're going to see this thing applied. That even a few months ago, we, we could have speculated you know, back and forth on whether that would happen. So it finally happened. Now, what does that mean to your question? Yeah, Christine, what is going to be applied? That, that, <laughs> what, why are we, we so happy well, it, about this? Well, it means that we're going to have 27 countries across the EU block, 300 million people, where any, any licensed entity in the crypto space in any of those jurisdictions is going to be able to do business across all 27. This is, this is just massive. Yeah, that is uh, massive. Some uh, parity then you, for, you just, for each jurisdiction, right? They can onboard much easier. Yeah. And if you're running a business, you know, there's so many great businesses across the EU that are, that are constrained by the, the challenge. And, and post-Brexit, it's even worse because it used to be that, you know, the UK was included. Now that's a separate entity, just like Switzerland. But but you can't underestimate from a commercial perspective the access that these 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 uh, you know different different businesses and crypto across the board will have uh, when that happens. Now I can tell you that that you know that suddenly doesn't feel so far away. You know we're, mm-hmm. we're coming in the end of 2023. This is less than two years away. This means that we can you know we'll see. I think people starting to plan to develop to to hire for to deploy capital, to set up new entities, because this certainty has come in place that we're going to have this harmonization of the rules uh, across the block. So this is this is absolutely, I think, monumental. And the rules, Tim, we're talking about things like travel rule um, and and exchange licensing. And I don't, was, are there any like rules that, that stand out or either that were included or not included to you that, that are particularly, you know, notable? Well, the, from a, in a general sense, we're talking about, you know, classification of assets in different ways. We're talking about uh, licensing regimes. Yep. Um, we're talking about AML, KYC, all the stuff that that really is fairly bread and butter. There a couple of things do do jump out, though. Uh, one is, as you mentioned, the travel rule. This uh, Somewhere over the summer, we we finally got for unhosted wallets this this travel wall uh, kind of kind of removed. So right. it's a it's a bit of a it's got a bit of a, a dual element to it. On the one hand, this is great. It, it's going to mean that we can we can send assets to each other from our unhosted wallets, and and really not be subject to a level of scrutiny that, frankly, from a from a philosophical perspective, I think a lot of us in this space will w- w- will continue to demand. Uh, and right. that's great. That that that's a I think that's good. That's that's a very healthy realization across the EU block that this was really not going to be a tenable thing to try and control. Right. Um, the flip side is it, it adds another element on the custody side, though. Um, which you know, what are we going to do there? If you if you you know if you want to have some sort of regulated custody, it changes the game a little bit. But but and by the way, I think it's fair to say in a general sense, 
that even though the, this has been finalized, it's, we're not going to see the end of modifications and changes. And I think that's also healthy. Right. Right. So that's the first thing. That travel rule element, I think, is 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 great. Yeah, that's that. I, I, I also think it was great. This is something that FinCEN in the U.S. has been looking at. Like, And, and what I really love about it, and you said it really well, that it wouldn't be tenable. It represents a, a realization um, a very healthy one among, you know, European Union commissioners or and policymakers that, you know, you couldn't try to impose something like that on, on self-custodied, you know, peer-to-peer transactions, but it, it just wouldn't be effective. Aside from the fact that, like you said, philosophically, we don't want it. It, it just, you wouldn't yeah. be able to stop or regulate direct peer-to-peer, you know, Bitcoin and ETH transactions. So very healthy that they've you know, learned that that's true, right? That they, that they can't do it. So, and, and, and we, we, it's something that the industry has opposed here in the U S as well when it's come up. But are all aspects of Mike Minka pretty tenable? I think there was another aspect of it related to stablecoin um, limits that there was a lot of confusion around how, how it would be applied. And, yeah. What and was that? What was that one, Tim? On the stable yeah, coin. this is a, a last-minute uh, French edition. The French camp got in there, um, and I'm also a card-carrying Frenchman, so no comment on that. But <laughs> but the um, the the French came in, and look, this is this. I, I think it's. I think we should call it what it is. This is a this is a protectionist move. It's it's a recognition that dollar stable coins are are such a, a sort of overwhelming proportion of the global stable coin market. That doesn't work. If you're Europe, you have to you have to try and put in place some mechanism to allow euro stable coins uh, like Euroc out of uh, of circle to proliferate and and allow there to be and you know euro euro settlement and euro pairs for all the assets in here. So what one way to do that, uh, and it's and it's a pretty crude way of doing it, and I don't really see how this is sort of going to happen in practice. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm actually going to read you the exact text because okay. it is it's brilliant. Like, so when for a given asset reference token, the estimated quarterly average number and value of transactions per day associated uh, as a means of exchange is higher than 1 million transactions and 200 million euros respectively within a single currency area, it shall stop issuing the asset reference token. <laughs> and the so asset it's, reference it's, it's a hard the, cap. Yeah. So they cap yeah, the... It's, the it's, both the transaction uh, count and the 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 dollar value, the euro the euro value of the transactions for non euro denominated stablecoins. This is extraordinary when you think about it, right? So USDC, which is the naturally used stablecoin pair today, right out of the gate. I mean, this is gonna this is gonna become an issue, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, it, it's it's the it's the natural pair to use as soon as it hits this level. Um, which I don't think is going to be difficult to hit. Yeah, right. Um, we just got to stop either. issuing it. Like, why do you? That would get that would apply to all the Mika regulated entities, I suppose. Right. So you'd have like Binance, yeah, for example, is supposed to stop stop trading it, basically. Because yeah, exactly. And remember, Binance is is now implied in this because not right. only are they regulated in Paris, but it's Italy and Spain. They've got they're they're on a tear getting. Uh, regulated status across the EU, so that that there's no, they will have no choice so if they want crazy. to if they want to stay in business, and then they have to present a, <laughs> a plan within 40 working days to to kind of reduce it. So I look, I th- I don't think this will survive. I I applaud the recognition that there's got to be in, in all areas of the world a healthy stablecoin presence in that particular underlying set of currencies. I think that's normal. I don't think that's sort of controversial. I think this is a bit of a brute force measure. So watch this space for how that will be applied or, or more likely more likely changed. Yeah, very interesting. And I think it's a good point, Tim, that like 
some businesses, some crypto businesses in the European air in the in Europe will start to to look at you know Mika being finalized in some time like 2024 being applied and then start to hire like start to plan around this. Um, I know you were um, down in in Singapore for token uh, token 20 2049 2049 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40 there's a bunch of numbers 2049 <laughs> just kidding i don't know um, but but tell Big us yeah tell us a little bit about the kind of activity that you're seeing in the in the asia region and how it compares to some of the these great crypto developments happening in europe would love to know also what's what you're seeing down in in asia and and um, the the crypto scene there yeah, well, first, a big shout out to our to our APAC team. We're also building a team in Hong Kong and Tokyo, uh, who, and we all convened last week, which I think it felt like the entire world was convening in Singapore, because it wasn't just Token 2049. There were another a number of other conferences, mm-hmm. and there was the Formula One, the the global circus that is Formula One right. in a night a night street circuit around uh, around Singapore. So there was a lot of activity. The energy. Again, as actually uh, Mike Novogratz pointed out on stage, it's almost like there's there was no, there are no macro issues at all in, in the markets are just fine. A little bit of a of a bull market feel in the middle of a bear market, but I think that's because it's a coming out party for Singapore. They've been locked up for longer than the rest of us. Finally, they're, they're open for business in Singapore. Even Hong Kong is getting close to being open for business. Very different issues over there, but. Uh, so the energy was incredible and we it wasn't just the local players it was all the global players who were in town and so you know what what is why what's everybody excited about well right because it's a tiny it's a tiny little place right like, singapore yeah it's a what, little island. what's the draw it's a little island state yeah what's the draw um well one it, it was always an important financial center you will look at some of the more recent uh, statistics and it, and it really has become the financial center for asia it, on the back of a the pandemic and b what's going on in china and and the china influence which has been you know going on for years now than the, the adverse effects that we're seeing on hong kong what does that mean lots of chinese money coming into singapore now just to put some 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 sense on this the structural element why 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 is how significant is this you can look at leading indicators like school fees and property prices, and they're going through the roof. You know, real money coming in. But my favorite statistic of all, the Rolls-Royce index. How many Rolls-Royces have been sold in Singapore on average annually for the last 20 years until 2021? About five. Um, how many have been sold in 2022 so far? 143. Wow. Now, that is a, an indie, and by the way, there's a there's a there's an uh, uh, a reverse uh, and completely counterintuitive perspective here. As soon as the price goes up on Rolls Royces, they sell more because it's seen as a status symbol by the Chinese, you know, high net worth consumer. So this is an extraordinary and structural kind of you know shift in in assets coming into the nation. A new uh, a new uh, family office being set up every week for at least two hundred fifty million dollars. That's wow. that 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 that's going to change. You know, you just think about that. That's going to change the locus, the importance of Singapore, and it's already there. You can see it by the energy that we saw last week. So I think watch this space for Singapore's growth. Everybody who was there left with the clear view that it's not a future thing. It's happening now. The Hong Kong story is just playing out really badly. People are leaving in their droves. Capital is, is flying to Singapore. 
you can't hire fast enough. You 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 can't you, you can't set up businesses quickly enough to capture the this 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 seismic shift. I think we'll look back on this period as as when really the balance shifted in 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 the APAC region. It's it's quite extraordinary. Amazing. I mean the the yeah, the stuff in Hong Kong with China's influence and the protests we'd seen over the last years and. It's it's really is a shift. Hong Kong had historically been, and for a long time, even even before, for a long time before being formally returned to China by the British, um, the financial hub of of Asia, basically. And yeah, and and wow, so really shifting to Singapore. What a coup de grace for that small city state. By the way, as you said, always been you know a, a wealthy and financial hub, but. Um, to to become the center of gravity for for you know APAC finance is just a, an incredible development. And it's even you know it's even more than that. It's funny we all have this natural assumption that Singapore was always like this, but actually, if you go back forty fifty years, it, it really wasn't that way. Um, they've grown out of of practically nowhere in in that shorter period of time to become the the the, the now de facto dominant financial wow. hub of of APAC. So extraordinary seismic shifts happening in APAC, and, uh, and you know, we'll be feeling that for the years to come. I'm, I know it. Amazing. Um, well, Tim, what else? Uh, anything else on your radar that our listeners should be paying attention to in, in Europe, the Middle East, Africa? I don't know. Basically, you know, Tim's like the, the, our, our global traveler here. So w- anything else you want to highlight? Two quick ones. One, Middle East. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, let's not forget that. There's also uh, a lot of oil money there yeah, now. And, and, and they're, Dubai they're, they're is, on the rise. Dubai and the UAE in general have really also staked out a pretty big uh, claim, not just in finance, but in crypto specifically. They, they have. And the crypto community ha- has flocked there for lots of reasons throughout the last couple of years. So there's a very healthy kind of crypto community there but what's what's new over the summer is abu dhabi has, has, has published principles for crypto there which is really very crypto friendly and and as always clarif- clarity helps uh, immensely in terms of attracting businesses and and activity dubai's avara framework which is very similar is up and running uh, a lot of big players signing up to that so you know that's over the last year that's that's really moved forward a, a, a lot and Binance is now regulated in both Abu Dhabi and Dubai as well as Bahrain. So these are all indicators of of, a, of, of that region also becoming more and more important. And I think we'll see uh, the, the sort of the, the global paradigm shift to, you know, it's New York, London, uh, the UAE, Singapore and, and Tokyo to some extent. Right. Yep. And Tokyo is sort of a bit more muted. So. Uh, that worthy of note that the Middle East is is on the rise, and I'm I'm looking forward to spending a lot of time there the rest of this year because that's when you know everybody's out and about post summer d- doing business. Um, the very last thing I want to 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 point out this this I think is fascinating, uh, and I'm absolutely convinced that you won't you won't have heard this one because it's fairly new. Back to the UK, the Law Commission. Now, the Law Commission. Why is that important? Very fancy organization across the UK looking at law reform. So it's really predicated on this idea, a very healthy idea of, well, you should always be evolving. Um, and the, the Law Commission has a consultation published on digital assets. Now, why is this important? Mm. This is fascinating. Now, how do you define assets in the UK legal framework? You define assets as a, uh, a basically a physical asset, which could be a bar of gold. Um, and then you've got this kind of notion, which is really rather fascinating, of uh, of of, a, of an in in movement asset. So that would be something like uh, a bank account. 
it's not physical, you own it, and or it could be interest payments from a bond. Now, that's basically the only two types of assets that exist in the UK until now. The UK uh, Law Commission has, has, has I think this could be fairly unique on a global scale, has recognized that dematerialized data objects like tokens and crypto don't fit into the physical property category, nor the property in action category, which is the money in the bank and the interest on a bond. A data object is a third type of, of property that has been proposed by the Law Commission, composed of data in an electronic medium that ex- exists independent of individuals and the legal system. Interesting. Take that. So I, I'll, I'll kind of, I won't go too far into this, but what it means is this is a very real set of steps. This, is, this isn't just sort of a high-level thing. There's a lot of very important and influential uh, people involved in this and organizations. I think this will influence new legislation in the future and allow for a, 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 a true separation uh, of, of this new asset class from, from everything else. Um, and that can't be anything but healthy, I think, for, for, for things. I think we might see more of this globally. I think it's worth double-clicking on that for all of our, all of our listeners. Go to the Law Commission, Consultation on Digital Assets, uh, and see how that works because uh, this is this is pretty pretty significant. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, figuring out ways well, or, or seeing sort of like legacy and important legal bodies um, recognize and classify um, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and other crypto and digital assets, um, either by expanding their frameworks or clarifying how they fit into their frameworks is, is always big news and very important long-term for adoption. Um, that's just fascinating. And the lawyers too. I mean, this is like complicated stuff, you know, for lawyers and regulators. Um, so great to see them be innovative like this. And anytime you see crypto companies like filing publicly or like filing for like an S1, you see a glossary of definitions trying to explain to regulators, this is what a blockchain is. Right. But it's all a very technical definition defined by technologist developers. But I don't think I've ever seen uh, like a glossary of definitions that's been created from a more legal perspective of like, how do we think about these assets in, in a legal framework and, and, and defining yeah. crypto in, in that lens? Well, think of, think of this as a, as a final point, that, that a transfer of a, of a, of a physical asset revolves, involves no change of state of the asset, right? So same state before and after. Arguably, that's true of, uh, of, of, the, of the assets in action. You know, interest is just, you know, was, was in, in the bond and now it's yours. That's not true of crypto, right? If you, if you, if you, cha- if you transfer the asset, certain things change. You, you're, ch- you're changing the nature of the keys from one to another. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're changing some change of state on the distributed ledger that it's, that it's, uh, that it's recorded on. They're recognizing that now. This, this, and that's why they've realized like, hey, this doesn't fit into the other two categories. Let's create a new one. Uh, I think this will, uh, this will sort of lead to interesting developments going forward, which are net positive for the space. Wonderful stuff. Absolutely. Um, Tim Grant, head of Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Galaxy Digital. Tim, congrats on um, all the growth. I know you've been here for about a year now, and um, great to see your team, you know, primarily based in London, do so well and, and grow so well. Um, I know a lot of those folks, and, and they're truly excellent. So congrats on that, Tim, and awesome to have you here. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate that and look forward to coming back in a couple of months and, and refreshing everybody. It's always fun. Love you guys. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Tim. All right. Well, I guess that's it. This was one of our longer episodes, but really good. I was thinking back through what we talked about. Reminder to our listeners what we said. If you would like to ask us questions or suggest topics, 
Um, hit us up on Twitter, GLXY Research. Uh, email us, research at galaxy.com. Very easy to remember. Um, and like I said, if you send a voice memo, we will consider playing that question or comment. So hit us up. But I, that's all we've got, uh, right, Christine? Nothing else on the agenda? Should we do, uh, I'm looking at our producer, should we do another 30 minutes? I mean, like, <laughs> 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 um, that's it. Everyone have a great weekend. Um, and this was Galaxy Brains. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. That's all for today. See you next time.